This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello, and welcome to the Win Grin podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Justin Bartek to the show. Justin is currently the marketing director for Ginya Holdings, helping to anoint them as the number one ramen chain in the world. Justin has a very interesting background and has been doing local marketing before it was cool. Really excited to have him on. Let's get into it. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem, Evan. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing good. Staying busy. Good, good. What's that wall art behind you? Is that the core values? Yeah, it is. Ooh, love some good core values. Can you talk us through them? The core values are authenticity, creativity, hospitality, integrity, and teamwork. The real core value, though, besides that, is we operate under the Japanese business practice of Kaizen, which really translates to continuous improvement. So throughout our organization, we're always trying to find newer solutions, better solutions, better way to do things. So it's really a nice way to work because that parallels what I believe as well very closely. So we have the freedom here to explore new brand partners or different things that we haven't done before. So it's a really nice way to work. And Justin, you've worked at some incredible companies, Qdoba, Halal Guys, so many more, just to name a couple. How do you find that core values impacts? Like, is core values, is that just fun artwork to put on your wall? Or how much does it actually mean to the culture and performance of the company? I feel like it depends on the brand. I feel like there's definitely some brands where it's given lip service. And maybe that's just because the brands are so big, they kind of lose focus on it and it's not a priority. But most of the brands I've worked at recently, they've been small enough where it really does matter. And the teams are small and you kind of need everybody pushing the same direction. So here it definitely makes a difference. We do believe all these things that we talk about and we talk about them often and we try to align what we're doing with the core values. But really, the main one that I take away is just this message of Kaizen and continuous improvement. I call it constant elevation. Always want to go to the next level. Always want to try new things to help the business. So like I said, that's the best for me is the Kaizen. Just once I heard it when I was talking to them, it was like, yeah, I can fit there. I definitely know I can. So. How are you able to translate Kaizen to people that work? How does that translate from the top all the way down to, to the entire team at, at, at Jinya? From the top, that part's easy, I feel like, to what you're talking about. It does get more difficult when you get into the store level employees and how do you present that. But what we try to do is just have that focus. And it could be small things like small team shift lead meetings, right? Like five minutes before we open. I've been at the restaurant when we've had these and it's just what can we improve on today? What is our focus? So we, we're always trying to focus on things where we're deficient and make that a focus and talk about it. So I see that inside the stores for sure. And like I said, it could be a five minute thing, but it could be like, hey, our ticket times were longer yesterday. Let's focus on that today. You know, like, so we kind of try to break it down in a very simple way, at a store level. On the big level, on the brand level, it's hard to do a lot of different things at once, obviously. And we're a small team. So We do have to kind of focus in on what's the most important or, you know, what's the KPI? What is our driver? You know, what are we looking at? And then kind of strategically focus on kind of just listing them out and then which ones are the most important and then attacking and then moving to the next and so forth. But while that's happening, of course, there can be new partners that show up or new technologies or new things that we think we need. So then we explore that as well and kind of 
always are continuously working through that process. What kind of framework are y'all using to determine the top KPIs? Is it the OKR framework or something else? Really at this brand right now, it's it's in a place of we're really building it. It feels like from the ground up, even though the Virginia brand's been around for over 10 years, the team is new within 2020. So we all kind of started, all the executives here started in 2020 or later. So it's kind of a newish team. We come from different places, different backgrounds, but we've hit it off pretty well where we think the same way or we know what the needs are. You know, I think we have a really great team. With that, really what it was was building systems first. You know, like we didn't have a lot of things that restaurant brands, even of this size, need. So we spent last year through COVID, but trying to implement certain technologies, online ordering, putting together deals with third-party delivery companies, which we didn't have before, upgrading our tech stack for the restaurants, getting them all on a higher level software. You know, these things that are step-by-step, but then once they do that, then we get a better online ordering experience. Then we get X, you know, so we're always trying to say, look, we need to get to this standard because then we get to do these other things that are new and exciting or we'll provide money for franchisees, which at the end of the day, that's what they're looking to get out of it. So there's always steps to that and there's always technology and we're a small team. So it's really focusing on, okay, the POS has to be up to this level. If not, franchisees, you can't have online ordering. So let's get there first. And then, hey, there's a new version of online ordering. If you're not up to this level of software, you can't have it. So let's get you there, you know, so that. It's always continuous things like that that we're dealing with, but really it's been foundational. It's been putting in tools that everyone can use. On my side, it's like for digital marketing, I work with a company called Hyperlocology, where we're really doing these hyper-local digital targeted ads for each location. So we don't look at it as like a DMA targeting, or we're going to send this ad to this state or this city. It's in five miles of the location, finding out who the customer is, finding lookalikes, rinse, repeat. And then the creative is always changing. The ideas are changing. So do you want to promote lunch? Do you want to promote alcohol? Do you want to promote happy hour? Do you want to promote hiring, which is huge for all industries right now? We have tools for that. And then we really focus on a hyper local level of like, we're not wasting any dollars. You know what I mean? We're always building each location's pool of people that are going to see these ads and it builds over time. Really just putting in foundational pieces is what we spent the last year doing. Now we're kind of getting into some cooler stuff, working on a movie tie-in with a show that's coming to Netflix, just some cool stuff like that that we weren't able to do last year just because of what was happening in the world. Now we've kind of got a more foundation here. So now we can look at doing like the really cool stuff or the things that are the outside world would be like, oh, that's interesting. Not just, hey, we can do online orders now, you know, like that everyone can do that. So <laughs> few things. One. I was sitting out on a presentation the other day. Uh, it was Liz Basner from AW Restaurants about how to effectively maintain your internet presence for all your local stores, just making sure that your Google is right and your Yelp is right. And, and it just blew my mind as a consumer how much goes into the things that we just assume happen automatically. So hearing about the system that you have set up is, is really interesting. But the two things that, that you just said that I would love to dive into is the hyper-local marketing at scale that you had mentioned, and then also Netflix. And and let's start with Netflix. Well, first off, can you share anything about the show that Jinya is going to be on? I can't share much because it's not final, final what we're trying to do. We've been in discussions with them for a month or so. But basically, it's a show that's going to come out in March on Netflix. It's a famous, I can say the name, it's Michael Mann did it. He's done a ton of movies and shows, so it's definitely legit. And it's based on Japan. So I think that's why we're the fit, right? They reached out to us. We vetted it. We said, wow, this is a great opportunity. So I can say that much, but I can say it really does tie in well with the brand. There could be some cool activations in the store. So we're like either giving away a prize or making a special ramen or things like that where it'll tie to the show in a unique way. 
So we're working through it. We can't really say the name yet, but there's a lot of details still to be worked out. But that's what we're talking about now. And it's just super exciting because we know that things are going to be pretty popular based on who's involved. Well, I guess in this case, they came to you. But I always wondered, how does product placement in TV shows or movies, how does that come to be? And ultimately, how does it come to life? I think it's usually on the creative side of the actual people doing whatever the movie or TV show is. They're the ones that reach out because not for nothing, but like restaurant brands, like I don't have this Rolodex of Hollywood producers, right? So it's kind of like you have to know who to talk to in in that situation. But I can say in the past, when I was at the Halal Guys, we did some really crazy activations. We did a record release party at the carts in New York City where we had the artists come out. We had the music playing. We gave away food at the cart. We gave away T-shirts. It was just like such a cultural kind of event outdoors, you know, really cool. I've done shoe collaborations with like Extra Butter and Clark's. We made Halal Guys Wallabies shoes, sold them at Extra Butter in New York City, which is a boutique red and white sauce colors. So I've done that, done things with like Adidas and other brands where it's like they retroed a shoe. They wanted our cart employees in New York wearing the shoe. We did a photo shoot. It was hanging in a gallery in Soho. You know what I'm saying? Like things were like the halal guys, a street cart, but look at them now. They're in a gallery in Soho doing this activation with Adidas and the Knicks, you know? So it's like things like that are super cool. Here, I'm just scratching the surface, you know, like there's a lot of things we can tie into and things like that, but all those other things came before that. So we needed the systems. So we're just getting through that now, but the creative stuff will start to come, you know, as we go. And for me, like, I'm just open to it, right? Like I chase it a little bit, but I'm open to it. And it seems like when you're open to things, things come to you and that's what's happened in my career. So that's how I live and how I work. So it's just staying open, seeing opportunity and then doing the work because the work's the real part. There's a lot to do and there's a lot of things to do to get these things done. You have to be able to do the work, but really it's just about being open to it and then it'll come to you. And if you remember the TV show Entourage, my brother was one of the principals of Avion Tequila. And one of the guys he started Avion with grew up with Doug Allen, the producer, writer of Entourage. And Doug agreed to put Avion into the show. And he said, but I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to use it. You just got to trust me. So he went on. Turtle in the show started brought Avion to the United States and ended up being a huge hit right as Avion was launching. But it was almost too successful in the sense that everyone thought Avion was fake. And then everyone thought that the team of Entourage launched Avion. So then they had to do a whole new ad campaign like Avion, it's real. So it's it pretty funny. <laughs> you touched on it a little bit here. And something that I thought was really interesting that you said before the show is life is made up of a lot of random meetings that impact the course of your life. Has that always been your mindset or was there an event or a point in time that you realize that that mindset is what's going to yield you getting the most out of unique opportunities? I think it's evolved over time. I mean, I can tell you a little bit about my background. Like I was born in Los Angeles. My parents divorced when I was two. My mother remarried. We moved to Northern California. So I grew up in a town called Paradise, California, which if you know, burned down and Ron Howard made a movie about it. And it's like the houses I grew up in are gone. My father's house burned down. My sister's house burned down. They were literally homeless. When the fire happened, I was in New York. I was working for Halal Guys and I'm getting texts from my sister like, yeah, we're going to have to evacuate. Then she called me like in a panic, like, hey, we just have our car and we couldn't go home to get anything. Was everyone okay? 
Yeah, it worked out. You know, like this is years later now, but they got new homes, worked out. They're probably better off than they were, but going through that trauma was rough, right? But just from my background, it's like I look at myself like I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I know who I am, and that's what the guide is. And it's not about saying that, you know, I know more than someone or less than someone or whatever. I don't care. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I'm kind of a lifelong learner. But how I've developed this over the years is just every day for me is a success because I made it out of there. And what I mean by that is it's a small town and it's like a lot of people there would pay. Hey, I work at the grocery store. My father was a 40 year grocery store vet. My, my mother was a homemaker. So it's not like we had, I'm the first to graduate college in my family. Like there's a lot of things in my life where it's like realizing the world is bigger. You know what I mean? And realizing your place in it because I didn't have a guidebook. I didn't have a CEO as a father that said, you go to business school, you meet these folks, you do this. It was like, I didn't know anything. You know what I mean? So every day was learning. But with that, it was kind of like over time, I developed this mindset. And it was just like, in my life, I've had meetings with people or met people where they really affected my life. So once I sat back and looked at that, random meetings where it's like, wow, I made this one connection and now it changed my life or it changed my career or I switched jobs or companies because I met someone randomly. So I'm just open to it. And I kind of just thought about what is my personal mantra. And it's literally developed into like, be open, do the work, live limitless, because there are no limits in life. And for me, every day, I'm out of paradise. Like people would just work at Kmart their whole life. You know what I'm saying? Like there was no career path. There was no book on what to do. So I look at it like every day that I'm doing this is better than doing that. That's my foundation. So I feel like I have these Northern California values, but I'm in with the sharks, you know, in LA. And it's like, I can go to New York. I can do this. I can be in any room. I'm comfortable being me. So if they don't accept me for me, maybe it's not a love connection. You know what I'm saying? But it's okay because we're all different and that's all right too. I'm just comfortable being me. And it's like, I know my stuff. I know how to make these brands go. I've developed a few brands now and it's like, I know what I'm good at. I know my place. And I just know that through my life, I've made these relationships and it's really affected my life and helped me to get to the next place, to get to the next place. And it is for my life, it's a constant elevation, like each job, a little more money, a little more prestige, a little more stuff to do learning, but it's all good. It's never going down and it never has for me. And so at this point in my life, it's like, I looked at it and said, this is who I am. And then this is what I believe. And it's working for me, you know? So I've just been talking about a lot and people really react to it because they're like, wow, this guy is on something a little different. He's figured it out for himself. And I think that just by figuring it out for me helps other people to kind of think about their own situation. Here's a question for you. And if it doesn't make sense, I could add more context. But do you think that events that happen are objectively good or bad? Or it totally comes down to how you perceive, like every event is neutral and you could perceive it to be good or bad. I think it's more of that. And I can say this from personal experience. Like I've had jobs where I'll give you a real example. When I worked for Veggie Grill, right, they decided to change the department. And with that, they were eliminating my job title, right? So I was going to lose my job, but how they did it was I had a three week old daughter. I was on paternity leave. It was the week of Thanksgiving. That's when they decided to tell me. I just thought, wow, this is very poor taste. You know, I felt offended by the timing and just the way they went about it. And plus what they told me on the phone, because I couldn't even go to the office legally because I was on paternity leave. What they said was, we're changing the department. We're going to have a digital marketing manager. And I had just come from a digital startup where we were doing localized marketing in 2012. 
So I knew it front and back. I knew what to do, but it was so offensive. They said, well, you can come and interview for it, right? Instead of just giving me that job or moving me into that job, knowing my background, instead, they didn't even look at me or know about what I had done. They didn't talk about it. And what I learned was the CMO just wants to bring in her person. So it was a life lesson, right? It's not about me. It's about her. It's about her team wanting to build her thing. So then I lost all that anger. It was like, this is how the life works, right? So what that allowed me to do, though, I didn't get a job for like eight months. I stayed home with my kid every day. So I was with my daughter every day. My wife went back to work. I was with my daughter. So I got this time that normal people don't get to spend with their kids. So it ended up being a positive. Then the halal guys came around and then that was the best opportunity ever. So it's like, it is to your point, it's how you look at it. And at the time, sometimes that's tough, but really it's just, if you can take a lesson from it, you're going to be better off. And that's kind of what I try to do when chips are down like that. There's going to be something better that comes along always. And that's kind of how the mindset has to be. My wife and I are expecting our first kid. We're expecting a boy about two months. So we're super excited. I'm curious for you, how much is my mindset going to change in a couple of months when I become a dad? I would say it's changed a lot. And I would say it changes in ways where, especially through COVID, COVID's another factor, but being a parent of a young kid, she's six now, she just had her birthday last week. What's important changed. Like I've been doing a job remotely for a year and a half, getting everything done. Why do I need to come to an office and work eight hours a day at my desk? I don't. You know what I'm saying? I would rather go pick up my kid from school and never have to have daycare in my life. You know what I mean? I don't want my kid to grow up on daycare. And that became more valuable to me. Let me work here six hours a day. Let me go get my kid and then work from home the rest. I already did it every day. I worked from home every day and we got everything done. So let me do that. I'm more productive. I'm a happier employee. I can spend time with my kid. I can pick her up. I can do her homework real quick. Keep working. It's just so much better for the balance of your life. And it's not about being chained to a desk. It's about getting the most out of your employees, but they need to be happy and involved. And you need to do a little something for them instead of just saying, I need that control. I need you to be at your desk. No, we don't. We've proven we don't. So that's a big one for me. And that did change over time. Having kids, having COVID happen and just the way that we had to work, it affects everything. But I think you'll see when you have one, things will change a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. And you'll say, I really want time with her or him. You know, I want to spend as much time as possible with them because at the end of the day, as parents, it's our job to take care of them, teach them the right things to do. And if you don't have time or you're not with them, how can you do that? So it's big for me. We are a community marketing podcast. I want to shift gears and focus back on community marketing and local marketing. And you mentioned before the show that you have been doing local advertising before it was cool. So first off, how do you define local marketing, local advertising? Well, I can put it like this. In 2012, I was working with a company called Circle Street, which was founded by Alex Nosefera. His idea was, we want to make big brands speak local. That was it. How do we do that? So what did we do? We worked with an ad company that had a ton of ad space, right? We negotiated with them. We explained what we wanted to do. And we ended up getting their ad space for 33 cents on the dollar. So that was the first part we needed to do to do what we wanted. Then we started flying around to franchise brands. So like Domino's Pizza. Let's say there's a Domino's in Huntsville, Alabama. And let's say it's Friday night. There's a football game, but it's a high school football game with Martin Luther King versus Maine or whatever you want to say, right? If you saw a digital ad in 2012 that said Domino's Pizza, Martin Luther King versus Maine, two pizzas for 12 this Friday for the championship game, would you not be like, how in the hell do they know that first off? And how is this brand as big as Domino's giving me this ad that's so relevant to me and to my city and to everything? That's what we were doing. 
and this is 2012. So everything was manual. I would go search out these events. I would search out weather. We had True Value Hardware. There was a blizzard in Boston. We were selling snowblowers, but we knew the blizzard was coming. You know what I'm saying? Having that kind of relevancy, I saw the potential of it. Like, this is huge. It's very hard to do in 2012, but it's like, wow, if you can nail this, this is the future. So I knew that early. Getting a restaurant there, the partners weren't there. It was not set up for that for years. Now we're at a point where everyone wants hyper-local. They know it's valuable. I knew that 10 years ago. For me, I just look at it like an advantage, but like now it's about who's the partner, how can we execute on the local level? How do we figure out who the customer is in the local level? Because what I've learned here, Virginia Ramen customer in LA is much different than in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is much different than in Orlando. So the cities matter, who they are, how they skew age-wise, income-wise, et cetera. So over time, if we're getting those learnings and we're hitting the right people at the right time, and then finding more of them in those cities hyper-locally, to me, that's the golden ticket and that's gonna win. And it's not about a silver bullet in marketing. We talk about, oh, we need something that's going to work right now and raise sales 5%. This is not that. This is foundational. This is a change in the way we do business. And over time, it's going to get better and better. The other part of it is we want to be always on, which means always on Google search, always on display, always on Instagram, Facebook, right? We want to have one of those four channels at least always on for every location so that we're constantly marketing to those folks in different ways, new and exciting ways. We want to refresh the creative. We always have things to talk about here because we do a quarterly menu refresh. So there's always new things to talk about, new things to shoot. But now it's like, how do I make the TikTok better? What's the strategy? What do I need to do there? Should I work with influencers? Like I'm figuring out as I go, I trust my gut and I trust what I want to see first. And then I see what's going on in the market, you know, with the age range or with like TikTok, it needs to skew young. I don't want to be making TikTok videos. I want to hire 20 year old kids to do it because they know what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? So like, I'm not dumb and I don't think I have all the answers, but I want the people that know what to do to do it. That's the best way to do it in restaurants because I don't claim to know everything. I want to work with the partners that are yet the experts and help me reach my goals. So that's kind of how I attack it. A pain point that I hear often especially in the QSR and fast casual dining space is companies have collected a lot of content from local sponsorships that they've done, local events that they've done, but all of their digital strategy is done on a national level. So they feel like all of that content that they've collected is irrelevant and then end up just reverting to a generic brand message that is relevant to everyone across the country. It sounds like you have figured out how to crack this code a bit. What advice would you give to a marketer that is having this pain point and constantly reverting back to the same generic content for their digital, social, the rest of their media marketing mix? If they're not trying to get to a one-to-one relationship with the customer, and what that means is I know enough about you to never, like if you're eating vegan every time, I'm not going to send you a pork ramen message, right? Because that's not relevant to you. So that's not only wasting your time. You might say, I don't need to hear these messages anymore because they just don't know me, right? That I could lose you as an email or a text or whatever that, whatever way I'm reaching you, you could just say, I don't need this anymore because it's not relevant. We want to get to one-to-one where it's like, I know enough about you where I send you messages. You go, they know me and this is relevant. I'm going to open this because this is going to help me or serve me or help my day or whatever that thing is, right? So every marketer should be striving for that. 
how you get there. There's a million ways. When you talk about the national problem, yeah, we can do this national branding stuff all day. That's great. But I want to get to know who are these people that are coming into the restaurant in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Where do they go? How much money do they make? Are they families? Are they single? The more I know about them, the more I can put that data to use, the better off I am. So there's a lot of ways to do it. But if you have that mindset of, I want to get to one-to-one, because think of e-commerce, Amazon, eBay, They're sending you things that they know you're going to react to. They have all this data. They have data scientists working on it. I don't have a data scientist. I'm a restaurant, right? So I need to depend on a partner to like help me go through that data. What's relevant to me? How can I activate on it? There's plenty of loyalty kind of partners out there or digital partners, but that's where you got to start is just, I want to get to a one-to-one so I know all my customers and I send them relevant messaging. I think that's the starting point. My uh, co-founder, Zubin, whenever he gets targeted with an Instagram ad he typically buys it because he thinks that the algorithm is so smart that they know him better than he knows him and he's going to love any product that he gets targeted with. (laughs) You mentioned earlier something that you're setting up right now, Jinya, is a tool that essentially enables you to have hyper-local content relevant to the five-mile radius of different restaurants. But you set that up from a central location. Can you speak a little bit more to what that tool is, how it works? So the company's called Hyperlocology and what they do, I give them, they're not really an agency because they're not taking an agency fee out of every digital buy. A lot of agencies will take 20% and you just know, okay, that's, I'm not getting anything for that except them doing this work. They don't do that. You pay an upfront fee and it's not that much even depending on the size of your brand. And then all your money spends go directly to your ads. So that's the starting point. What they do is I went through, Google has a document, it's 15 pages long where it's every attribute. So income and sex and all these things that they track, right? We went through and said, who do we think is the Ginya customer? And that's based on anecdotal data. That's based on Instagram data of who I see that's looking at it. Just all these things, because we never had like a technomic study of who is the customer. We've never had that here because we couldn't afford it anyway at our size, right? So I'm doing a lot of guesswork. But what I do know is over time, these things will improve and it'll get more targeted based on who's clicking on these ads who's looking at them. We're going to collect all that data. Then we're going to find more of those folks. And then we're going to keep churning and keep going through and finding these folks in the local market within five mile radius. The second part of what we're doing is I said, I have 40 locations. I can't babysit all 40, meaning I'm one person. So I can't set up a marketing plan for every location. I can't do their work for them because it would just be way too much to do. So it has a self-service tool where Say I spend $100,000 on ads for the whole brand, right? For three months, for a quarter, whatever that is. We're building these audiences, but what they can do on their own is there's a dashboard, there's pre-approved creative. So say they want to promote lunch or alcohol sales or dinner or hiring, pre-approved creative. They can go in there in three steps. They can say, I want it to run for two weeks or a month or whatever the time frame. They put in their credit card, push go. That starts activating it locally. So Facebook, local to their store, display local, Google, search local, all local. But what they're doing is if they're throwing in their own money on top, that's just adding to what I'm doing for them. It's going to get better and better. The more they spend, the better the targeting gets. The more people they reach, the more people they hit over the head that have shown intent because we're tracking every click. So it's like if they click to order, great. 
That's a person we want to save. We want to hammer them with messaging at the right times, right? We're going to find more of them. We're going to find people that clicked on the website, looked at the location. Who are those people? That's a different group. We're going to find more of them. So it's like every click, and we're trying to do it super intelligent, where every dollar spent is very impactful, not just the pray and spray is what they call it. Just put the ad out there in the DMA. Let's hope for the best. It's not that at all. This is very highly targeted, and it also allows a franchisee in most franchise restaurant brands, it's like you put in 1% of sales, 2%, 3% into the marketing fund, but then you're always required to spend locally probably 1% for every brand out there. This is an easy way for the, here it is. Here's the dashboard. Here's a bunch of work I've already done for you. Here's what's going on in your area. If you want to add to that, I make it so easy that you can't say no. You know what I mean? And that's how we try to attack that too, because I don't want to be a babysitter. I don't want to say, hey, can you send me those invoices for your 1% spend this month? I want to go to a dashboard and say, yep. Charles spent the money. Great. You know what I mean? That's all I have to do. I don't want to babysit them because at the end of the day, in the franchise world, I treat them all. They are CEOs. They're their own CEO. Many of these guys have multi-brands. They have different businesses. They don't put all their time and effort into it like I do or like our CEO does in our brand, right? I have to respect that, but I have to provide them tools. Let's make it easy then. Here, here's this. We've already done the work. All you have to do is put your credit card in there and you're going to start helping yourself even more. So then it's like, why wouldn't I do this? I'm trying to build sales, right? So it's like, I'm trying to make it easy. That's the real key. What has engagement been like from the franchisees using this tool? It's been good. It's it's slowly growing. Like anything, you have your early adopters that are all in. Some people are a little more tech savvy. Some people want even more than I give them, meaning like, what are the real details of this? And what are we looking at in this? And that's fine because hyperlocology helps them. They'll get on a call with any of my operators, walk them through anything they want to know. You know, like very much a two-way relationship where it's like, I've worked with other brands where it's like, once you sign, you're on your own. Here's, yeah, we have tech support or yeah, we, you know, we'll have a monthly meeting. There's no strategy. There's no, these guys are like diving into it. If a franchisee has issues with like, Hey, I'm just not seeing it. They'll look and see the data. Should we move here? Should we point here? They work with us in that way, both myself and the franchisee. So they're kind of unlike any other partner I've ever had where it's like, we're really trying to solve for this stuff. And it's not just lip service. They're not just taking our money and providing their product. It's like, we're trying to figure this out at the same time. And they've got other clients across different verticals. So like in the banking world or in this other franchises. So it's like, they're taking in all that data as well. And they're saying, oh, this is working over here. What if we tweak this? So it's like having a partner like that is huge, but that's really the way that we try to attack this thing. And the ones that have put in and have gotten that extra layer of customer service are just like, wow, this is so great. Thank you. Now it's like convincing the ones that we never even talked to. Every franchise brand has this where there's a couple outliers where it's like, they're just one store. They're doing their thing. They're not really doing any marketing. You can tell, you know, it's just, you see those guys. So now the job becomes, how do I get these guys involved in here? And how can we get them on board? So that's a me job, a sales job internally, but the ones that are doing it are loving the results and what we're trying to build. And they see the over time, this is going to win. There are over 50,000 restaurant chains across the country. Let's assume that Quality of the food is number one importance, and please argue that if you disagree in what's most popular. What do you think is number two in, in importance? I would actually say location is still the most important thing because there's plenty of fast food brands where you're like, I don't really love this food, but it's so easy for me to get this and I'm hungry. I'm going to just go there. So it's not really quality of food always. It could be taste. Yeah, sure. Craveability is big, but I think it's still location. Even though there's less focus on brick and mortar and going into places, even if you're a cloud kitchen, it's location because if I don't live near it, I can't use the cloud kitchen. I can't get all these brands or access. So it's still location. I think it's location, then it's food, and then it's service. Because I do think if you love food, you will put up with kind of mediocre service because it's so great. 
So I think service is third, but I do think it's super important. And for casual dining, which is where I'm at mainly here, way more important. We try to really take care of the guests. We do our training is when you start a franchise here, you do 40 days of training in our restaurant here locally. 40 days is a lot back to back to back. You know, you're in there with your team too. It's not just the owner. It's like their managers are all in there 40 days. When we go to the store to open the store, two weeks of training straight before the doors open on site. So that every hourly worker is, we make sure they're trained. So like training is hugely important, but that goes back to the service piece. So I would say it's really location, food, service. You can kind of mix that order a little, but that's in my career, that's how it's been. In a franchise model, how is the location determined? Does the franchiser choose the location that they want to open a restaurant or is corporate selecting that that location? There's many ways you can do that. At brands I've worked at, it's worked different ways. Some have like a real estate, I'll call it a council, but like real estate people that are really out there looking at every city, every location for the franchisee. Other ways to do it are they just hire their own local real estate person and then we just say yes or no. That's kind of how it works at most brands. Like they present it to you like, here's the spot. This is the information. And then it becomes a yes or no from your CEO and your COO and your VP of franchising. They would discuss it and say, yeah, this looks good or it doesn't. But there's a few ways you can do it here. It's a little, you know, we're smaller. So we do have a VP of franchising that's selling the brand, but we use third party tools to help us with like, let's look at this area. You know, what's the traffic flow? Like there's tons of tools like that out there as well that you can pay for and get really good data on different targeted markets. So we use those here, but as brands get bigger, like at Qdoba, we had hundreds of locations. We had real estate people out there doing this for franchisees. Justin, I know you're super busy and this has been enlightening and inspiring and just awesome to sum it all of it in one word. I want to let you go soon, but, but first, before I let you go, I would love to do our lightning round. It's four questions and you have a total of two minutes to, to answer the four questions. So whatever comes to mind first for each question. Question number one, what's your favorite youth sports memory? When I was growing up, even though my dad worked at Safeway for 40 years, what he would do was he would always coach my teams. So he would always set his schedule. So he'd work super early in the morning, get up super early, get off in the afternoon so that he could coach soccer or baseball or you know, whatever. So for me, it's a weird one. It's it's very personal to how I grew up. But I remember I was, I think I was 11 or 12 and it was Little League playoffs. And my buddy Tim, we were up one run in the bottom of the seventh because you only played seven innings in. This kid hit a single up the middle. My buddy Tim was playing center field. He threw the guy out at home. The guy was coming from second. We win the game on that play, and I'll just never forget it. And what makes it really special is that Tim actually passed away in a car accident when we were in high school, when we were 17. So just, it's a fond memory for me because I think of him in that way. It's very personal, but like, just that was amazing. And like, I'll never forget it, just everything about it. So that's the one for me. Second question. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? When I was real young, probably thought I was going to play baseball for sure. You grow up, you're like, okay, that's not going to happen. So once that happened, I kind of, I just switched to business. I didn't know what I wanted to do for in business until I got to college, like which way I wanted to go. But I knew I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not into biology. I'm not, you know, so I, it took me a while. I'm, I'm kind of a late bloomer in that sense, but I knew it would be business, but then I just liked marketing. You know, I liked selling brands and putting brands together. Once I learned how that works, that's the path I chose, but I didn't have a plan and it's okay if kids don't. That's the other thing I would say. It's like, it's okay to not know right away because also if you think about it too much and you're like, and then it doesn't work out, it can kind of blow your self-esteem too, I would think. So 
It's important to just kind of let it flow, figure out what you love, and then try to go that way. Because if that corny thing they say about if you love your job, you're not working, kind of true, you know? So that's what I'd say. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? In the retail space, being from NorCal, I'm a huge fan of what Sierra Nevada Brewing has done, giving back to the community like no other, being carbon neutral, all these things they celebrate that make the world better. Love that. I love their product, of course, but like all the other stuff makes me love them more. So that's one brand that is just one of the greats for me. And then Nike, just because they can do anything. They can work with all these crazy cool people, artists, people making creative, like just it's unlimited what they can do. And it's great to see. So it's just that's a fascinating brand to study as well, I would, I would say. And finally, Justin, what is your go to cause to support? Recently, it's been about the restaurant industry. So I know people say what they will about like Guy Fieri. My personal interactions with him have been amazing. And he supports a lot of different charities for restaurants and chefs. And where are we going to get more restaurant workers? Where are we going to train our chefs? You know, he's very big into those causes. So I've looked at those a lot recently and really tried to put some marketing campaign things behind that and also just my own dollars, but really just helping our industry, you know, because it is, it's definitely a needed industry out there. People love to eat, but where are we going to find the people to support it? Where's the career path? Like there's a lot of things we need to do in this industry, but I would say what Guy's been doing has been amazing. Just another quick personal story about it. And I'll try to take this very quickly, but when the fires did happen, he drove up there with a 30 foot trailer and just started cooking for everybody there. And my niece who was 10, yeah, who was 10 at the time, she loved watching Triple D and whatever. So my sister sent me a picture of her and Guy Fieri, just he's making food with his people for just giving it away, right? Because people were basically homeless. So he did that. And then I went to a restaurant show a few years ago and he was the keynote. And so I sat in the front row, middle seat. He did his talk. You know, it was more of an interview like we're doing just one on one. Wasn't him standing there with a mic like a preacher or something, but I walk right up to him and he's talking to like the CEO of restaurant news and all this stuff. And I just said, he looked, they all looked at me and I'm just like, Hey man, I just want to thank you. And I pulled out my phone and showed him the picture of my niece. And I said, I'm from paradise. And you went there and you didn't say anything. You just did this. And it really lifted the spirits of my sister and my niece. And, you know, just thank you. That's all I want to say. And he looked at me and goes, no, man, thank you. Turns away from these people. How are you doing? Has this full conversation with me. You know, are you, is your family okay? Are you doing I'm like, yeah, we're good. You know, it's, it's okay now, but just thank you for that. So then I go on, go outside. It's drink time or whatever. It's like happy hour, but he has a line of people that he's getting photos with like a professional photographer. So I get stuck talking to people and stuff. And then I finally go do it. And I'm one of the last few and he has to leave. Cause he's like, I'm going to Reno. I'm going to shoot triple D. I got to get out of here. But he sees me in line. He goes, Oh, I know this guy. And he goes, get over here in front of everybody. Right. And so we do the photo and I just thank him again. But just, you know what I mean? Like that level was amazing. And so I'll always be a fan, but just it's real. It's real life. So it was great. Justin, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our episode with Justin Bartek. As a recap, we discussed the importance of core values and how to scale them mindset and how to learn and take positives from every event that happens in your life and local marketing and some tools and tips like hyper locology to use for your teams. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Evan Brandoff. See you next time and play on.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.